morning. There we go. Hey, welcome. We're glad you're here with us. My name is Scott, and we are looking at God's Word together today. If you're new with us, let me just catch you up a little bit on what we're doing. There are 16 chapters in a book called Mark, one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four, first four books of the New Testament. And we are going through the 16 chapters of Mark in 16 weeks. So that's a little hard to do because there are often way more wonderful things to talk about in a chapter than what I or most pastors could really thoroughly address in 30 minutes. But uh, what we're trying to do is look at one chapter a week. And today we're in chapter 11. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 11. If you don't, you might find one in the seat there around you and you can turn to Mark 11 that way. Or you can follow along on the screen. But this morning as we look at God's Word, my goal, my, my prayer, and I'd like to ask you to bow your heads with me and let's just make this our prayer, is that God would speak to us, that what we learn today would be His agenda, not ours, and just understand that. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at Your Word together this morning, um, I know that these people don't need to hear me or my opinions. It's about you and your opinions, your agenda. So Lord, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would want for us today, to be open to your word and to be quick to not only hear it, but to do it, to apply it, to live it. Um, help us in these ways, Lord, always, constantly to look for ways to take steps further and further toward uh, maturity and walking with you and growth in you. Uh, thank you. Your words are the words of life. And we love you. We thank you for loving us. And we say all these things together in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody together said, Amen. Amen. Let's look at Mark chapter 11 together. Here's how it begins. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. All right, let's pause, and let me ask you a question. When you think about character traits that you want to develop and grow, you know, in and, and, and uh, develop in your life. How many of you would say that fickleness is one of them? I just want to grow in learning how to be more fickle and inconsistent. Anybody? No, no me neither. Nobody does, right? None of us want to be that way. And yet when I read this passage, that's what comes to mind. Because it was only about five days later that this crowd, pretty much the same crowd, presumably very, a, a large number of the exact same people, who were just saying and shouting, Hosanna, glory to God. Things like this are five days later shouting, crucify, crucify. How do you go from worshiping and yelling Hosanna to 
hating and yelling crucify. Well, it is that word, fickle. It is that word, inconsistent, even maybe hypocritical. But really, I think mostly it was just fickle. These people did not really understand or know what they wanted or what they wanted to land on or who they were. And we need to learn from this story. You know, we can look at this story and kind of look down our nose at these people like, yeah, what's wrong with them? But then again, if we look in the mirror, don't all of us see fickleness in our lives? I mean, do you? I do. At times, inconsistency, I see it in my life. I don't like it, but it's there. And so when I look at this story, I think, all right, Lord, how can I learn from this? Let you teach me how to develop in a way that where I would not be so fickle. Well, I think uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is an awesome chapter, and there's some connections to Mark chapter 11. And, and so anyway, if you have your Bible, put your finger in both, Mark 11 and Ephesians 4, because we'll bounce back and forth a little bit. But let me show you, you know, in Ephesians 4, God tells us uh, through the Apostle Paul there that um, we need to grow. We need to be strong in our walk with him and develop this relationship with him. And we do that, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children or, or fickle, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I don't want to be fickle. And the way to not be fickle is to be solid, to be faithful, to be mature in our faith. Um, you know, I posted this picture on Facebook earlier this week. Let me show you that. I, I saw it. I thought it was really cool, so I reposted it. And I put the words this, or the caption, Don't say that God is silent when your Bible is closed. You see, a lot of people get to feeling kind of down, maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually, or both. They, they feel... You know, like maybe there's a distance, a separation between them and the Lord. They don't feel close to Him. And they're like, God, why did you abandon me when I needed you? Why weren't you, why aren't you here when I need you? And yet the truth is, they are the ones who did the leaving. There is distance between us and God only when we create the distance. God never leaves. He never forsakes us. Scripture is clear about that. The Bible tells us in James to draw near to the Lord and He will draw near to us. When we draw near to Him, there is closeness. If there is a lack of closeness, it is not God's fault. I think when people struggle and become fickle or despondent or any of this, it is usually because their prayer life is flat and their Bible is closed. And we need to be careful when we look in the mirror to recognize, is that me? Am I down because my prayer life is flat and my Bible is closed? If so, then the opportunity is right there. To change that, to let the Lord help us change that. We need to grow in maturity, grow in our faith. And Romans chapter 10, 17 tells us faith comes by, how does it tell us? It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we want to develop our relationship, if we want to avoid being fickle like these people in this story, we need to spend time in God's word. We need to spend time in prayer on our knees before the Lord. So I pray that this story of fickle people can remind us that, um, that we all need to develop that relationship with the Lord. Spend time on it. Spend time walking with the Lord, communing with Him, making it a priority in the morning or afternoon or evening, whatever works for you, maybe all of the above, to spend time alone with the Lord. Let's keep going. Verse 12 of the chapter continues. On the following day when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, 
he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to them, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat, from, fr eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, pause. That, that's kind of an interesting passage. Like, wait a minute, what? Well, why would Jesus curse this fig tree? Mark recorded right here, it's not even the season for figs. Poor little fig tree, you know, why is he, what the, what the poor little fig tree do wrong? It's not the season for, for figs. Well, before we address that, which we will, put your finger in it. We'll come back to it because the scripture will come back to it in a moment. But let's keep going. Look at this. Verse 15 continues, and there's a connection here. They came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be, a, be a, called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when when evening came, they went out of the city. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus lose his temper here? Did he? Did he I heard a yes, maybe, yeah, different. Did he lose his temper here? Somebody else said no. What's the, what's the right answer? Well, I'll tell you what. Jesus was angry. He was even violent. But I would say no, he did not lose his temper in the sense that he did not cross the line. You know, the proverbial line. Jesus was angry, yes, but he did not sin. Therefore, he did not, he did not lose his temper as in loss of self-control. He did not go over a line. Let me, let me explain something. Let me show you scripture that supports this. It is not a sin to be angry, but it is dangerous, very dangerous to be angry. Anybody in here ever been angry and then found sin to be crouching around your corner and Bad things, you know, right down line from the anger. Yeah, the anger itself is not necessarily, it can be, but it's not necessarily a sin. But anger is dangerous. It's like thin ice, very, very thin ice. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. There's this chapter again. Verse 26, God tells us here, he says, In your anger, do not sin. Think about it. In your anger, do not sin. In other words, very clearly implying it is possible to be angry and not sin. But it's not easy. It's very easy to sin when you're angry. The Bible goes on to say, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anger is dangerous. Anger needs to be handled extremely carefully and quickly. Notice, I mean, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Handle it quickly, if at all possible, and don't let the devil have a foothold with it. Anger is something that the, the enemy can use to scale the mountain, if you will, of your heart, to conquer, to control. That's the concept of a foothold, to get control of you. It's a dangerous thing. But again, it is not sinful to be angry. It's just very easy to sin when you're angry. The key here is what makes you angry and how do you handle your anger. If you have a temper problem, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I did, my hand would be up. Now, I'm a lot further along, and I've gotten a lot more self-controlled in 
later years of life than I used to be, but I cannot stand before you and say, I have no temptation, no problem with anger. Yeah, sometimes I have to still be very, very careful. It can still rear its ugly head in my life too. So if I were going to ask how many of you have a temper problem, I would guess there would be a lot of hands in the air. And if that is you, if that is you, you need to learn from Jesus' example in this story. You need to meditate on it. You need to ask God to speak to you and reveal truth to you through this story and scriptures that talk about it as well, like what is on the screen right now with Ephesians 4, and like a verse that I quote often because it's so important in my life, has been in our family's life, and raising our boys, dealing with Kim and I's relationship. And James 1.19, which says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone, or sisters, all of us, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and what? Say it with me. Slow to become angry. It is not a sin to be angry, but it is dangerous, and we need to ask the Lord to lengthen our fuse. Lord, help me to become slow to get angry. Help me, Lord. Please help me, Lord, to become slower to get angry. Jesus avoided sin while he was angry here. He did not lose his temper. He did not make a mistake here. He did not sin here because, for one, he had perfect self-control. And secondly, because his anger was different than yours or my anger tends to be. I don't know about you, but most of the time when I've been angry, it has been about something that involves me. It's all about me. Something about, you know, somebody did me wrong, somebody hurt my feelings, somebody held out, somebody was rude, somebody, you know, whatever. There's always, but it's always something about me. That's not what was happening here with Jesus. Jesus had what we would call, what should be called righteous anger. It wasn't about him, really. Uh, um, you know, in fact, when, when Jesus, well, let me define righteous anger. Righteous anger is when when you see God dishonored or when you see people mistreated or both happening. And Jesus, if you think about it, in the time when he was most mistreated personally, when it was all about him and, and it was terrible in terms of what was happening to him, I'm talking about when he was on a cross. If there was ever a time that Jesus would have been justified to act out in anger and to smite somebody, or do something back, or whatever, yell at somebody. It would have been when he was on the cross, and yet what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they are doing. Who says that? Only our Lord and Savior. Jesus was righteously angry. He was angry in this moment, but it was a righteous anger. And we need to learn from this and understand what it looks like. He was angry here because the people were abusing, the people in the temple were abusing. They were actually desecrating the temple. And so they were obviously dishonoring God. But they were also abusing people because they were all about cheating and robbing rather than serving and helping. And so Jesus was angry about it. He was fired up about this. It, but it was a righteous anger. It wasn't about his feelings being hurt or anything along that line. So maybe as we, before we move on from this, maybe with this short story, the Holy Spirit wants to, to, to do business with you and help you understand that you need to develop a lengthier fuse, that you need to spend time asking the Lord to help you become slower to get angry, to develop self-control as we see in Jesus' life, like on the cross in particular, and many times. Or 
Maybe through this short story, the Holy Spirit wants you to recognize that there are times where there is justifiable righteous anger, and He wants you to stand up and make a difference. He wants you to say no to a, a, an issue or a list of issues or whatever it may be. But it needs to be righteous anger. It needs to be the right kind of thing. It's not about personal problems or people being mean to you. It's about things that dishonor God or things that hurt other people. There are times when Christians need to have a righteous anger and stand up against what is wrong. We see Jesus doing it here. But the question then becomes, well, when? Which situation is which? Well, put your finger in that one too. We'll come back to it at the end of the chapter. I'll show you. I think this chapter shows us that answer too. But let's continue. Uh, first, we'll come back to that fig tree that I told you we would come back to. Look at this, verse 20. At, this is just after this whole cleansing the temple thing. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you, your trespasses. Okay, again, some would question, okay, let's look at this fig tree situation. Why did Jesus curse this poor little fig tree? It wasn't even the season for figs. Fair question. Well, I would tell you the Bible doesn't tell us definitively, so I can't tell you definitively either, but I'll tell you what I think. I think this was a situation, an allegory actually, to illustrate the lack of fruit in Israel the lack of fruit among the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees in particular and others as well. And Jesus was making this point. But I'll tell you this, I don't think he was literally angry with the tree. He wasn't mad at the tree. It kind of looks that way, but that's just misunderstanding. He was using the tree to make a point, which we have to understand is okay. The tree does not have a soul. It's okay to cut down a tree and burn it in a fire or to build a house with it, or use it in some other way. It was a prop in Jesus' hand in this moment, and that's fine. He was making a point. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly why he did what he did or why he said what he did, but I think he was setting the stage and preparing the hearts of his disciples for what was about to happen, what we just read about. And that is in the in the temple, when he ran out, cleansed, when he ran those out that were, that were desecrating the temple, I think he was setting the stage for that, helping them understand what was about to happen. I don't think these happenings were back-to-back -back on accident. I think he was making the point that religion without fruit is worthless. Religion without fruit is worthless, just like James says, faith without works is dead. Now that could be easily misunderstood if you take it out of context or fail to give the other side of that coin. Please don't misunderstand. Please don't take it out of context. Let me tell you, I am not teaching that we gain our salvation through works, that it is a works-based religion. Not at all. But Scripture does say faith without works is dead. 
And Jesus, I think, is teaching clearly here that religion without fruit is dead. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. It is a free gift from God. Ephesians 2 makes that very clear. But Jesus also said in John 14, check it out. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments or obey me. If you love me, you will do these things, he said. And if we truly are followers of Jesus, then obedience will be part of our life. Consistency. Not, not like to the point that we never are capable of making mistakes, but consistency should be our goal, and obedience and maturity should be, our, should be part of who we are. And the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll talk about as we end in a little bit, the fruit of the Spirit needs to be part of our life. You know, but as we read this particular part of the passage here in Mark 11, I think the other main point is simply this. Jesus makes very clear, as we just read, that prayer is powerful. I mean, to the point that you can, uh, if, if God would lead it to happen or need it to happen, a mountain can even be moved and thrown into the sea. Prayer is powerful. Can I get more than one amen? amen. Prayer is powerful. And his point is, so is forgiveness. Prayer is powerful and so is forgiveness. It is one flowing thought. Look at this with me, Mark 11. When we pray in faith with the things of the Lord as our focus, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible for God. God's Word makes that crystal clear. Prayer is that powerful. And, again, flowing thought. And so is forgiveness. That's why, as we just read, let me show you verse 25 again. Look at it. That's why these thoughts are connected with that word, and he talks about prayer being powerful, a mountain being thrown into a seat, all right? Verse 23 and 4 and so forth. And then 25, he says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He is clearly connecting these thoughts. Prayer is powerful and so is forgiveness, is his point. Another way you could look at that from reverse would be to say that the lack of prayer... Or as the lack of prayer can lead to great weakness, so can the lack of forgiveness. The Lord's Prayer. Let me ask you, how many of you have recited, probably memorized the Lord's Prayer at some point? Almost everybody. Even those who don't have their hand up, I'll bet you do too. You've heard it in movies. You know, it's, it's a very common um, and very well understood or memorized part of Scripture. Um, a few years ago, I preached a whole sermon series about the Lord's Prayer, looking at it piece by piece and applying those elements and looking at where other parts of Scripture uh, continue to say the same things. Anyway, it was a powerful series we enjoyed together. Um, but how about this? I'd like us to read it together, quote it together, but rather than the way you've done it necessarily, let's just go from the English Standard Version, my favorite at this point, the ESV version of Scripture, Matthew chapter 6. This is right after the disciples have asked Jesus uh, uh, to teach us about prayer. How do we pray? And Jesus responded with this. Say it with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let me give you a little side piece of information there. That second part of verse 13 that we just said 
If you were reading from your Bible as opposed to the screen, you might not have even seen that printed in your Bible. Many Bibles don't have that last sentence, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, because that was not in most of the early transcripts. It's been added, presumably, probably by some well-intentioned scribe somewhere down the road, but it's possible, maybe even probable, that Jesus didn't actually say that part right here. But no matter, it's a beautiful part, and it's fine to say that. Anyway, that's sidebar. Verse, thir- verse 12 again. Look at this. Verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I want you to pause and think about that. As we, ha- as we also have forgiven our debtors. Past tense. So, what, Because there's a big difference between knowing and reading or reciting or memorizing God's word and actually fully understanding it and living it. But what we are saying, if we follow Jesus' teaching here, what we're doing is saying, Lord, please forgive me just the way I forgave those people, or that guy, or that girl, or that person. That's what we're saying. That's what Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, forgive me the way I forgive others. Not like the way I'm trying to, or the way I know I should. No, the way I have already forgiven other people, to to the degree I have done that, that's what I'm asking you to forgive me. Whoa. It's a very powerful thought. But you know what? That's not really, in my book, that's not really the end of verse, or the end of the Lord's Prayer. Verse 13 is followed by verse 14. And in real time, back when Jesus and the disciples were having this conversation, and they asked, how do we pray? And he said, pray like this. Hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come. When he started doing that, he didn't say, end, period, all right, close, end of the story, now let's go sit down and do dinner. He kept talking. He, he might have taken a breath, but verse 14, he continued. Verse 14 continues. I think this is still part of the Lord's Prayer, if you will, or the teaching of it. He said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If you put that in the context of the Lord's Prayer, Guess what the main theme throughout the Lord's Prayer is really all about? It's about forgiveness. That's the number one piece, the most common, biggest common denominator within the Lord's Prayer. It's about forgiveness. And forgiveness is relevant to all of us because all of us need it. Amen? We all need forgiveness. We all also need to practice forgiveness. There are, I know, numerous people, first service Um, as well, of course, and and all of you here. There are many marriages, I would guess, right here today. Husbands and wives sitting beside each other. You might be sitting right beside them, and they look to be happy, and everything's fine. But actually, earlier today, or last week, or whatever, you know, there's strife. There is unforgiveness. There is pain. Maybe in your life, it's not between you and your spouse. It's with your parent for something they did 30 years ago. Or maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it's with a brother or sister or friend, neighbor, co-worker, boss, stranger. Unforgiveness is a powerful and ugly thing. I've heard it once described as practicing or living with unforgiveness is like drinking poison expecting the other person to die. Unforgiveness consumes you. It destroys you from the inside out. And this teaching that Jesus is giving us here in in Mark chapter 11, is for all of us. Forgiveness is not easy, but it is powerful. And Jesus' point here is that prayer 
is powerful and so is forgiveness. And I think you could say it this way, accepting Jesus' forgiveness means offering forgiveness to others as well. If you've been part of Impact for very long, you've heard me preach probably quite a few times. And if you have, you've probably, you know, maybe once every 10 sermons or 5 sermons, I don't know, I bring up and talk about Ephesians 4.32, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Not because I live it out perfectly, but because I strive to, because it's a priority, it's a focus in my life, because I know how important it is. And it simply says, again, from that chapter we're talking about, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I ask the Lord all the time to remind me of that. To help me be forgiving, compassionate, quick to let go of things that have upset or hurt. And just to kind of live out the, the Lord's Prayer, which is about the same thing. It's almost, you know, it's just a different way to say the same thing. We need to be quick to forgive. All right, let's continue. This is how the chapter ends. Verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, three different groups, they came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, he's saying, okay, you're doing it again. You're trying to trap me with something. We've been around this block a bunch of times. You've done this many, many times. And here's the deal. I, I will answer your question if you first answer mine. And here's his question, verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another. You know, saying, well, if we say from heaven, uh, then he will say, why then did you not believe him? Oh, but shall we, but shall we say from man? The inference being no, because they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. Mm, so they were trapped. They didn't know what to say. So they answered Jesus, <clears throat> we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now here's another somewhat puzzling scripture. Like, why, why didn't Jesus just answer them? Was he hiding something? No. Was this a hard question? Was was, was there something that, that, you know, he needed to avoid or be careful with here? Not really. He could have spoke the truth plainly and boldly. There was nothing to hide. So why did he do this? Why did he kind of play a game, if you will, be evasive with them? Well, again, the Bible doesn't tell us definitively, but I'll tell you what I think. I think he did so to model for us the need to avoid foolish arguments. Stay away from foolish arguments. There are times when we need to engage and talk with somebody that's on the other side of the fence about you know, whatever issue, set of issues. And sometimes we engage. Sometimes we talk. Other times we don't. And we avoid it and we walk away. We shut it down as Jesus did here. And we walk away. Foolish and stupid arguments are exactly that. They are foolish. They are stupid because they are unproductive. Now I use that phrase because that is what God tells us. It, through the Apostle Paul talking to a young man named Timothy. Timothy was his protege, if you will, or he was the guy that he was mentoring. And to him, 
uh, uh, Paul said things like this many, many times, including this. Look at this, 2 Timothy chapter 2. To young Timothy, he once told him, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. There's the phrase, don't do it. Because you know that they produce quarrels. In other words, they're not productive. They don't produce anything fruitful. They just produce quarrels. Stay away from them. Let me show you another verse in 1 Timothy 6. And as I studied this this week, I found Jesus, or I mean, Paul said this kind of stuff to, to young Timothy a bunch of times. Here's just one more example. He said, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Stay away from foolish and stupid arguments. There are lots of scriptures like this. Not only what Paul said to Timothy, but others as well. We need to learn how to avoid such unproductive things. Not because we're afraid, not because we don't have answers, but because it's unproductive. Okay, you might say, all right, that sounds great, Pastor. Awesome. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. How do you reconcile this point with the point you just made about Jesus, you know, standing up for truth and engaging and in the, you know, in battle, in a sense, when he was in the temple? He didn't walk away. He didn't shut it down there. He engaged. So which is it? Do you do that or do you stay away from such things and walk away? fair question. The answer is, I don't know. The Holy Spirit knows, and the Holy Spirit is whom you need to seek and say, Lord, show me. I need to know. I don't know. Here's XYZ situation. I don't know whether I should engage or whether I should walk away. I see Jesus sometimes engaging. I see Jesus sometimes shutting it down and walking away. What do I do here? And the reason we ask him is because he tells us to do that. Look at the book of James, chapter 1. God tells us through James, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You will be given the wisdom if you ask God. Not if you just think about it and think, yeah, prayer is really important. I, sh I, I should pray. Yeah, I should be a man of prayer or a woman of prayer. Thinking about it is, is you know, important to lead you to doing it, but just because you are aware of the need and, and think the concept makes sense doesn't mean the same as doing it. You need to actually do it. Stop and pause and get on your knees and say, dear God, I don't know what to do here. I need your help. Please guide me. Please bless me with wisdom. Otherwise, we become what James also talks about in James chapter 1. We become people that, that know the right thing but just knowing it is not the same as doing it. He says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't just know it, live it. And he tells us when you lack wisdom, you get on your knees and you pray and say, God, help me. I need wisdom to know what to do here. And that's a simple answer, but that's how we know. Because these situations, do we engage? Do we walk away? Are case by case. And it is something that only the Holy Spirit can help us figure out. There are times we need to engage and stand up for truth. There are times when God wants his followers to stand up and say, that's not right. That needs to be different. You are out of line, brother, sister, friend. This is not, you know, whatever. There are all kinds of examples. And there are other examples or many situations where we need to say, no, this is going to be unproductive. It's going to lead to quarrels as God's word says, and so it's a stupid and, and foolish argument, and I'm going to walk away. I'm going to shut it down. 
Let me say this, though, as we close. Even when the Lord does lead you to engage, there are guidelines and other parts of Scripture that tell us about how to engage. And we need to really be careful with that. Even when God says or leads you through the Holy Spirit to engage and to have the conversation, to address the issue with the person or friend or whatever, even then we need to do so appropriately. Colossians chapter 4 says, Let your conversations be... What's the word next? Let your conversations be what? Always. Come on, somebody say always. Always means, doesn't leave out anything. Always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let me ask you, when you season something with salt, if I have a salt shaker in my hand, how do I season it? Do I do, I do this and pour the whole thing, or do I do this? You season with salt by shaking the salt shaker a little bit. But a lot of Christians like to do this, unscrew the lid and just dump it on them. It's kind of like taking a 10-pound Bible and bashing them upside the head with it. Does that work? Have you ever seen that work? I have not. God does not want us to be like that. He says, season your conversation with salt. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Um, that's that's Proverbs, or Philippians 4. Proverbs 15 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Some of you need to practice these things and say, Lord, help me to develop more wisdom, self-control, patience, all these kinds of things. Let your gentleness be evident to all. You know, let me tell you about gentleness. Gentleness goes right alongside of patience, loving others, being self-controlled, being kind. In fact, those are five different words that have something in common. You know what those five words have in common? Let me read them for you again. Gentle, patient, loving, self-controlled, and kind. Those, they, are, they are more than half. They are five of the nine fruit of the, fruits of the Spirit, or attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. Five of the nine. They are what we are to be. If we are to be a Christian, if we are to be a Christ follower, then you, you look over there and you go, oh, what kind of tree is that? Oh, I see figs on it. Oh, fig tree. Oh, what kind of tree is that? Oh, I see apples on it. Oh, apple tree. Oh, there's a person. Um, I wonder what kind of person they are. Oh, I see these things. That, they're a Christian. I see this other person, oh, they don't have any of those nine things. Are they a Christian? Well, that's between the Lord and them. He didn't ask us to be judge and jury, but, but you know what? It's not, it's not very obvious in some people's lives, and it should be. The fruit of the Spirit, let me just tell for, say it for you, and I encourage you to memorize and meditate on this and ask God to help you develop this in your life. We all need it. Here it is, but the fruit of the Spirit. Say it with me. I think it's on the screen. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, God's Word says. The fruit of the Spirit needs to be part of your life if you are a Christ follower. And even if God calls you to engage and talk about some difficult issue with somebody, the fruit of the Spirit needs to be part of how you do so. It needs to be seen in your life. As we close, let me ask you this. Sometimes you and I are short on gentleness. We're short on patience. We are short on kindness. We're short on love. We're short on self-control. All of these things, aren't we? But how about this? Is anybody in the room thankful that our God, through the sacrifice and gift of His Son, has never been short on any of those things? Praise God. Our God is never short on love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control. 
He, he did what he did for us. He engaged, if you want to use that term, he engaged with us, but not for the sake of telling us off or putting us in our place. He engaged for the sake of paying for our sins and taking our place on the cross. Isn't that awesome? Jesus loves you so much. He didn't come to this world to put you in your place. He came to take your place. I want to ask if you would to stand with me right now. Would you do that? Let's stand together. We're going to worship and sing together about a Savior, our Savior, who is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. Not because he came heavy-handed, but because he came as a suffering servant to love you and to lay down his life for his sheep. You are them. You are the sheep. And I want to encourage you, if you hear the Holy Spirit touching your heart, there was a man in first service who heard the Holy Spirit speaking to him, and he came with tears in his eyes, and he said, I don't, I don't understand it all, but I understand I need to be baptized. Can, we do, can I do that today? So he was baptized in the first service. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need to come and repent of something that's coming between you and the Lord. Maybe you need to come and pray with someone. Robin, Heidi, and others are up here that, that would love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you about whatever issue is heavy on your heart, coming between you and the Lord, whatever it is. But let's sing about our Savior who is mighty to save. And if you hear His voice, respond to it today. Let's sing and let's worship.